Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Michelle Seiler Tucker, best-selling author of Exit Rich and CEO of Seiler Tucker Incorporated. Thank you for being on the show today. I'm really excited to, to get to know you better and, and learn learn from you today. Thanks, Rana. Thank you for having me on. I just wanted to throw out Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller because everybody can say they're a bestseller on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a friend who's uh, he owns a publishing company. He's like, he can get he, he it's it's not that hard to to uh, get bestselling on Amazon. You just got to get your category down. So you you pick a really tight category and you yeah. do some decent sales in there. The other ones you can't game them like that. So the fact that you're bestselling on all of the you know the different awesome. charts there is is pretty impressive. So I, I'm, I'm glad to have you here and. I always like to start off with just letting people get to know who you are and kind of how you got where you're at. So I jokingly, like I said, Michelle, I like to joke and say, hey, you were born. Some things happened and you ended up on a show about buying and selling businesses. Could you, like, can, can you fill in the gap on how you ended up here? Sure. Happy to. Um, I've been asked this question a million times and, you know, I've, I've practiced along the way because I don't like to talk about myself. I like to talk about how to educate business owners <laughs> about exiting rich. Uh, but anyway, I, I would say, you know, I wasn't your typical child around seven or eight. I, I never really paid, played with toys. I didn't play with dolls. I thought it was a waste of time to play with toys. I would walk around with a notebook and a pen and I would walk up to strangers at the bank, at the grocery store, you know, at church, everywhere. And I'd ask them, well, what do you do? How did you get started? How should, how can I get started? <laughs> and I was like at seven, eight years old. So my mom's like, Oh my gosh, she's going to be the next Barbara Walters, you know? <laughs> and um, so I, I'm not Barbara Walters, but I do consider myself somewhat of a reporter because I'm just curious, you know, I've always been curious. And I think that's what makes me so successful in mergers and acquisitions is because I'm like a kid in a candy jar. I can't, you know, I, I can't wait to find out how somebody started their business, you know, from their kitchen table or we saw a $55 million company that started out of a pickup truck, you know, with, with a third grade education. So I knew back then I was always going to be an entrepreneur. I knew back then I didn't want to work for anyone. And, you know, so I started your small businesses along the way, like lemonade stands and stuff like that. Um, I always tell my mom, I'll never get that three letter, that three letter word job um, that I would always be self-employed, but I was wrong. So never say never. I did end up getting recruited from Xerox and Xerox recruited me as their high volume manager. And then within six months, they promoted me to regional vice president over the South, uh, overseeing 100 to 150 salespeople. And then I realized really quickly, what am I doing here? I said I would never get a job. And now I'm stuck in corporate America. I love working with clients. I'm a people person. I love, uh, I love problems because I like coming up with solutions and I like building relationships that last a lifetime. And you're not doing that in corporate America. Plus, you're not getting anything accomplished. So I ended up leaving Xerox, left my six-figure um, position with great benefits, and went into uh, really franchise sales, franchise development, franchise consulting, sort of my own franchise business. And I did that. You know, everybody's like, well, how did you get in that? Well, I learned a lot about franchising and licensing in the Xerox model because they had all the small agency franchises. And so I'm like, oh, this can't be too hard. So I, I partnered with some franchisors. I was the equity partner. And I built my franchise development, franchise consulting, franchise sales company. But then Ronald, all these buyers kept coming to me saying, Michelle, Michelle, you know, do you have an existing business or do you sell businesses? And I kept saying, no, no, no. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? If they keep asking for it, maybe I should provide it. <laughs> and that was about, that was back in 2000. 2001. So I've been in this business 21, 22 years. And that's kind of how I got started in m and That's awesome. I love the entrepreneurial story. I like the background. Uh, I have a, a similar background. I, I was from the time I could actually, you know, mow a lawn. I, uh, 
I wanted to work for my father who uh, had a painting business. He told me I was too young. So I grabbed the push mower and pushed it five and a half miles into town because we lived out in the country and mowed lawns all day and I would push it back. And after a couple, probably a couple of weeks by this, and be honestly, after I got bit by two dogs in somebody's yard, he realized that he'd rather oversee me. And I, and I'm a hard worker. So, uh, you know, I, you know, since I could climb a ladder, I ended up working with him from that point. I was probably, I don't know, probably 11, 12, 13 years so old. So you walk 10 miles a day? Yeah, just to mow the lawns. Like our, we lived, our, our next door neighbors, we lived in this little place called Kellyville, Oklahoma. Our next door neighbors all had like 3,000 acres, you know. So we were like a small little farm that had 26 acres. So, wow. you know, I like go to my, you know, my neighbor. I had one neighbor across the street. I can only see one house. And I guess there's one little trailer house on one side. And then the lady beside us, she had 10 acres, which was the smallest plot of land around there. But like the guys behind us had 3,700 acres. So, you know, to do anything, like you weren't going to mow their lawns unless you had a brush hog. <laughs> so to do anything, I was like, okay, I hear kids make money mowing lawns. And uh, I had done it earlier before we moved out there. As a matter of fact, I had an older cousin and I, we were mowing lawns and I moved out there in fourth grade. So prior to fourth grade, him and I went around mowing lawns and we landed so many uh, lawns that my dad had to come out and help us finish all of them because we, we had sold them, committed to doing them. And uh, he shut us down because we just couldn't keep up with, we were too young to be doing what we were doing. And yeah. he's like, yeah, stop it. But uh, that was, for, we moved out to Kellyville in fourth grade. So, and I love the young entrepreneurs. I have a friend who she just, her six-year-old just had a, a lemonade stand. And I seen it, that she were telling her friends on social media. So I invited the police department, the fire department, everybody could on her social media. And she's got pictures of you know, people lining up. Like this kid had the fire department come up, come by with lights on and stuff. It, it, if you look at what happens to little entrepreneurs when that happens, their first try is a big win. We just created, you know, it's his mom mostly that I don't want to take credit for that, but his mom set that up and, you know, put him in the place. And I just helped market it because I was a friend of the family. And, uh, made an entrepreneur for life, right? Once you've got that in your blood, like you did at a young age, you either born with it or something happened. And it's like, you get a win and the rest of the rest of your life, like I can do that again. So yeah. uh, I love that entrepreneur journey. Let's talk about, uh, let's just, just talk about exit rich. Cause you put a lot of work into that. It's a, a best selling and there's some real wisdom in the difference between just selling your company and actually selling your company for something that makes a difference in the rest of your life, you know, selling, you know, exit rich, um, is a whole different thing than I sold my company. Right. Yeah. A thousand percent. And I've written, um, three books on the subject. I have another one coming out and you know, everybody's like, well, who came up with that title? Well, I can tell you this. It wasn't my publishing company because <laughs> they're like, exit on top, exit on your terms. I'm like, that's terrible. How about Exit Rich? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> so the reason why I came up with Exit Rich is just because so many business owners are exiting poor. And the reason I wrote, you know, my, my third book on, on the subject is because it's my passion. It's my mission to continue to educate business owners until they get it. <laughs> you know, I need them to get it. And when I say I need them to get it, you know, Steve Forbes says 80% of businesses on the market will never sell. 80%. That means you have less than a 20% chance of success. If you talk to M&A Source, which is Association for M&A Advisors, that's a 90% never sell. So you have less than a 10 to 20% chance of success when you go to sell your company. That means that the 80 to 90% that don't sell, or if they sell, they're exiting poor. They're selling for pennies on the dollar. They're closing their doors. They're filing bankruptcy. And that's sad, Ronald, because if you think about it, most of the businesses selling right now and have been selling over the last 20 years are baby boomers. And baby boomers pour their heart, their soul, their energy, their life, you know, work into, into building their company. And they make huge sacrifices along the way. We're supposed to go in business to have financial freedom. We're supposed to go in business to have a better quality of life and be able to show up in our family's life, be able to participate in our kids' games and plays and, you know, musical theater and stuff. And when I talk to business owners, like I have one that's been in business for 40 plus years. And he said, Michelle, I missed all of that. He said, I haven't taken a vacation in nine years. I missed every soccer game, every football game, every play for my daughter. And that's not going into business for yourself. That's creating a glorified job that you go to work at every day versus a business that actually works for you. So exit rich is so important because it really teaches business owners how to build a business 
not a job. You want a business that works for you and so you're working for it. I know that Ronald, you and I were talking before the show about a company that we have that you might be interested in. And you said, I don't want to buy a job. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to buy a job. And most buyers don't want to buy a job. However, most business owners have created a job and that's why it's not sellable. So there's lots of reasons why businesses, 80% to 90% businesses don't sell. The number one reason is because business owners have created that glorified job, not a company that buyers want to buy. Number two, business owners don't think about selling until a catastrophic event occurs, whether that's internal or external. Internal are health issues, partners disputes, divorce. There's over 51% divorce rate in our country. Death. You know, I had a lady call me up from Dallas. Her husband dropped dead from, from a heart attack at the age of 40. Left her with a mountain of debt. She knew nothing about the business, nothing about the finances. And she asked me if I could sell the business. He had a construction company, mm-hmm. no employees, all independent contractors, no processes. He didn't build his company on the six Ps. When he died, the business died. Okay. And then the, the external pandemic or hurricanes, tornadoes, this pandemic that we've experienced around the world for the last two and a half years. So you need to follow the Stephen Covey concept. Start with the end in mind. Mm-hmm. Plan your exit from the beginning. Your business is your most valuable asset. Stop treating it as your baby. Business owners are like, oh, this is my baby. You know, I can't separate from my baby or my baby's worth $20 million. Your business, your baby's not worth $20 million if your EBIT has $100,000 a year. <laughs> so you really have to have a mind shift. And I tell my business owners, Follow the GPS exit model that we that we outline in my book, Exit Rich. I get it. You know, you, you mentioned a very uh, alarming statistic that you mentioned it from one angle, and I want to say it from another. The baby boomers owning businesses right now, if they and only eighty percent of them that ever sell. I think that's actually eighty percent of all the ones that are listed don't sell. A lot of them never. Yeah. yeah, a lot of them don't get listed at all. Yeah. That's a big concern considering if you look at the statistics, 51% of all businesses in the United States, 51% of all employers in the United States currently are still owned by those baby boomers who have to retire, right? And, uh, you know, they're in something in ranging from what, in their 60s right now, all the way up into the, their 70s and 80s, depending yeah. on, I guess, the range. In the next 15 to 20 years, we're going to have a real problem if we don't find a way to transfer those jobs. Jobs, you know, yeah. they're just going to start going away because the owner's sitting in the chair too long, right? They sit at their, their office. And I get it. I get the, I, I know what happens. Uh, as entrepreneurs, we allow too much of our identity to be tied into what we've created, right? That business is part of who you are. So there's a psychological side of, you know, wanting to quit. I I found a really cool little soap company has come up a bunch of different times on this show. Guy does a few million a year in in revenue. Didn't get too deep into his numbers because his wife thinks he should sell and one of his best friends connected me with him because they think he should sell. I think he just turned 80, um, right, right around 80. And uh, I got him on the phone. He goes, I don't want to sell. All my friends have sold their businesses, die within a few weeks. I'm not ready to die. And he really believed this, right? He goes, I said, so you're just going to run it until you're gone? And uh, he goes, no, no, I'll sell it someday. And I said, you're 80. And uh, I've known this guy a little while. He wanted to be one of the investors in my, uh, in, uh, my real estate firm. So I took it to lunch a couple of times. So I, I've got to know him a couple of different times. And I was like, so I, I could be a little blunt with him. It's like, you're 80 and you just had a stint put in your neck because you were close to having a, 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 a stroke, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, when's the right time? He goes, I don't know, but just not right now. I'm just not ready. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's a huge mistake. And the problem is he's setting his family up for failure, not for success. Yeah. And this gentleman that, that dropped out of a heart attack at the age of 40, has completely set up his wife for failure. She's yeah. going to have to file bankruptcy. And if you don't plan your exit for yourself, at least get smart, build a company that's sellable, build a sustainable, scalable, sellable asset. So if something was to happen to you, it could be sold for the family because the likelihood of the family stepping in and running a company is really slim to none. And companies are not passed down from generation to generation to generation like they used to be. So planning for your exit from the beginning is extremely an intelligent idea. It's just crazy to me because if you think about it, you have kids, right, Ronald? 
Oh yeah, two of them. And when, and when our kids are born, we we plan out their entire life. <laughs> we plan out, you know, where they're going to go to 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 preschool, where they're going to go to kindergarten, elementary, you know, high school, uh, junior junior high, high school, college. Some 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 people plan who they're going to marry, and so even financial, you know, advisors. We hire a financial advisor. A lot of us do, and we plan for retirement. Then we take our most valuable asset, which should be your business, and we don't plan for the financial success, the financial exit, so our family can exit rich one day if something wants to happen to us. It's financial suicide, and people got to get out of that 80-year-old mindset, you know. And I, I love the millennials and and the Generation X because they're starting really great businesses, SaaS businesses, e-commerce businesses, and they're building it to sell, and they're building it to sell within a few years. You know, one thing they are missing is the solid infrastructure. But other than that, they have the right mindset. They have the right psychology. They're not going in this to be married to their business and, and to treat this as their baby. So it really does take a huge, huge mind shift. And it's hard for baby boomers because their whole identity has been around their business, like you just mentioned earlier. And then the other thing I wanted to point out that you made a comment to you're right, it's 80 to 90 percent of the businesses that are listed, and most people don't know this, but there's over 30.2 million businesses in the United States employing over half the U.S. workforce. If you lose small business, you lose jobs, you lose jobs, you lose spending power. People stop eating out, they stop spending money, they stop spending money on discretionary, and so before you know it, the economy tanks because of small business. Without small business, over half of our economy will lose jobs. I mean, over the economy will tank because we'll lose jobs. The other thing I wanted to point out that is so so important these days that nobody really knows. Um, when I did my research for my very first book, Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth, I did the research and learned that 85, 95% of all startups would go out of business within the first one to five years. They're at great risk. But when I wrote Exit Rich in 2019, and I did the exact same research. I was flabbergasted to learn that the business landscape has flip-flopped. Startups are not at great risk anymore because you've got millennials and Generation X people come in and starting online businesses. They're solving problems. Their companies are solution-oriented to solve problems. They're not just another brick-and-mortar restaurant or brick-and-mortar smoothie store and or pizzeria. And they're actually solving problems. So now only 30% of startups are going out of business. However, out of 27.6 million companies, 70% of those businesses are closing down every year. Seven, zero. It's almost as bad as 80% not selling. And the reason for that is because of lack of aim. I call it lack of aim. Aim is always innovate and market. Always innovate and market. And these baby boomers become complacent. They want to keep doing things the way they've always done them. And the reason startups are so successful is because they're innovative. They're different. You know, and, and lack of aim is always innovate and market. Business owners stop innovating. They stop marketing. They want to do things the way they've always done them. And guess what? Their clients start aging out. <laughs> they're not buying like they used to. So you really have to innovate so you can appeal to the new generation, which buy, their buying habits are completely different in the generation you've been selling to. So we have a bigger problem in America, even bigger than businesses not selling, and that's businesses going out of business. You know, I, uh, one of the things I'm interested in in this space is, is the concept of, I've been an entrepreneur for many years. I told you a little bit about the real estate one. Before that, I've had other businesses. And um, inside of that whole journey of entrepreneurism, I love the origin story. How do people get started? And it's interesting, in the last couple of years, I've interviewed over, you know, probably 200 plus, you know, closer to 300 plus uh, businesses to either acquire them. We had a big roll-up project, so a lot of them are marketing companies. And <clears throat> their origin story is something I always like to start with. And I was surprised on how many I refer to as accidental entrepreneurs. They never sat down. They didn't come out of business school. They didn't come out of anything, like, trained to, to train them to be a business owner. They were really good at running one particular item or do one particular thing, somebody bought it and then somebody else heard about it. They wanted one. And the next thing you know, this guy's producing widgets. He owns a business and, you know, X number of years goes by. Now he's talking to you or me or somebody to, to sell it. And it was just kind of grown organically. So to some extent, I had to give up like expecting 
their books to be perfect and some other stuff to be perfect just because nobody's ever shown them how to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they did it just enough to that their, um, you know, their accountant and their tax person was okay with what they were doing. And that's mm-hmm. all they ever had to, to live up to. So, yeah. What's the, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, they're not, they're not taught these business lessons, but I will tell you, a lot of entrepreneurs with a third grade, fifth grade education that have built a lot bigger businesses than someone with a master's degree. So it's not always about education. It's about grit. It's about, it's about grit. It's also about identifying what your weaknesses are and hiring your strengths, hiring people smarter than you, getting the right person in the county because three out of five businesses are embezzled every year. <laughs> so getting the right people in those positions. But I will tell you, my gritty business owners are far more successful than some of them with master's degrees. So I have this, this show note here that says, "What ask you about your six P's. What are the uh, uh, how to build sustainable, scalable, and uh, sellable business? What yeah. are those six P's? Well, first it starts with, and if you're, if you're, so are you, do you sell businesses, Ronald, or do you acquire businesses? I acquire them. I actually, uh, I'm a buy and hold, or I'm what they refer to as acquisition entrepreneur. I'm looking for things that I could uh, buy, some things I want to buy and hold, and other things I want to buy, fix, and sell later. So within yeah, the first but you're five looking years. to buy a company, not a job. Exactly. Okay. So let's let's go through the six P's with you in mind as mm-hmm. you acquire. Okay. I think that would be fun. Let's do it. Yeah. I'm <laughs> All right. So number one, Ronald wants to buy, and we go by Ronald or Ron. I should ask you that. Before. Ronald is fine. Ron's fine. Either one. All right, Ronald McDonald. Right. You got all that money, Ronald McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So Rana wants to buy a business, not a job. The number one P before any other P's is people. Mm. Rana doesn't want to buy a business without people because Rana doesn't want to work in the business. So the number one P is people. You don't build a business. You don't build a business. People get this wrong. You build people and people build their business. So entrepreneurs have to focus on their strengths, hire their weaknesses. Entrepreneurs are control freaks. So their mindset is that if I want it done right, I have to do everything myself. But they can't be further from the truth because nobody's good at everything. And you'll never grow unless you let go of the control. So you have to have the right people in the right seats. And you have to ask the who question. Who handles customer service? Who handles you know, sales, marketing, accounting, legal, manufacturing, distribution, quality control, um, who handles, the list goes on and on and on. The clue here, Ronald, is you never want to be next to the who because you want to sit on the board, you're the visionary, you want to grow the company high level. You don't want to get into the weeds and work in the business. You want on the business, work on the business. So that's people. So you're not going to buy a business where a business is a thousand percent dependent upon people. Let me give you another example real quick. I gave you a construction example already. We have a dentist, been in business 50 years. One dentist <laughs> in a small town in Florida, three dental hygienists. The three dental hygienists for his daughters. He asked me if I could sell the business. I said, yes, I could sell it because I'm that good. <laughs> but it's not going to come without risk, meaning there's gonna, the deal's going to be structured with an earnout, by some seller financing. It's going to be structural callbacks, meaning that you have to stay on for two to three years Otherwise, you're going to pay a lot less for the business because the minute you and your daughters leave, the client, the patients leave. And he said, well, honey, we're not selling. I mean, we're not staying. And I said, well, honey, you're not selling. <laughs> and so we walked away from that deal. Um, but people is everything. And the second thing is product. Rhonda, when you're looking at a business to invest, are you looking at something in its prime? Well, you know, it's got a long, long, long shelf life in the industry. Like Amazon, are you looking at someone like a blockbuster who's died? You know, what are you looking for? You're looking for something that is in its prime and it's going to continue on for decades, right? Absolutely. I'm looking for something that, um, you know, people are going to, there's still going to be a need in the market. And right now I'm looking for things that there's going to be a need in the market that can handle a recession or potentially depression, <laughs> right? right? So A thousand percent. And then you're also looking for just, you're looking for a product industry service that is striving, not dying. And I always tell my sellers, you sell when you're in your prime. When you're in Amazon and you're in your prime, that's when you sell. You don't sell when you're a blockbuster because you're never going to exit rich that way. But, Rama, you also, I'm sure you're looking for this because you're a savvy buyer, a savvy acquirer. 
I'm sure you're looking for multiple uh, profit centers, multiple congruent revenue streams. Because if you have one revenue stream, that's what happened to restaurants during this pandemic. Down one way they get paid. Customers come in and they eat or they take food to go. There was no e-commerce business. There was no private label, you know, specialty items that they could sell in, in some gourmet shops. They had no other revenue streams. So I'm sure you're looking for multiple congruent revenue streams. So if one dies, then you've got other ways to get paid in the business. And I'm sure you're looking for a, re, a, a subscription model, reoccurring revenue model, because most buyers are looking for reoccurring revenue model because that means you got mailbox men coming in every month, right? Right. Are you looking for that? Okay. Absolutely. Uh, coming from the real estate, it's kind of trained that we're supposed to get a monthly check. So uh, I, I look, I'm currently looking for businesses that either have a subscription model built into it or something that would be easily added to it. Like I'm looking at, of all things, coffee roasting companies, just because I've seen a couple that moved to the subscription base or just killing it in that space. So. Okay. So I think I know what you're looking for. I'm going to bring you some good businesses. <laughs> awesome. And then, and then the third P is processes. Mm -hmm. And because you want to buy a company and you want to work on it, not in it, and you want to grow it, you want it to be sustainable and scalable. You want it to have processes in place that really drive the people versus the people driving the processes. And processes are typically the most broken, um, typically the, the P that people pay the least amount of attention to in their companies. And that's not just small companies. We're selling $55 million company right now, 350 employees, uh, six different divisions. One division has no processes <laughs> for it. And they tell their employees to write up the processes. So you want to make sure that you have processes. But Ronald, not just any process, because business is a competitive landscape, very competitive with these millennials coming in with all their brilliant problem-solving you know, uh, brain trust. And so you want to make sure that you're designing the processes with the customer experience in mind. I'm going to take you back to a movie called The Founder. I don't know if you ever, if you ever watched The Founder based upon the McDonald Brothers. If you haven't watched that, I encourage all of your listeners to go watch that movie. So the McDonald Brothers started McDonald's back in 1940, and The Founder is based upon their story and Ray Kroc, how Ray Kroc came in. And Ray Kroc came in and really took it away from McDonald's and grew it to what it is today. But it's really important when you design your processes to ask yourself, more importantly, ask your clients, what do you want to experience? McDonald's back in 1940 said, we want our clients to experience fast food restaurants. We want them to experience great tasting food that's hot and fast in 30 seconds or less because there was nothing at that time. It was all drive up fast food, which is not fast food, you know, the Sonic type restaurants. And so McDonald's designed their, their processes around that customer experience. And Ronald, they did that back in 1940, but it is the same processes that they use today. And it's why you can eat at McDonald's anywhere in the world and get the same experience. Have you ever been to a doctor's office? Yeah. The doctor's offices design their processes around their patient experience, or do they design it around the owner's agenda? Uh, it's usually around the owner's agenda. <laughs> Always around the owner's agenda because their hours are ridiculous. I complain right. every time I have to go to the doctor. Their hours are 9 a.m. to usually 4, and they're sometimes they're closed for an hour for lunch, and then they're usually open half a day on Thursday and closed on Fridays or open a half a day on Friday. So my husband and I own medical clinics, and we did this. We said, okay, let's design our processes around the customer experience, not around our agenda or our doctor's agenda. Our doctors want to work for us or they don't, you know, but you're going to follow this process. So our processes are we're open three nights a week till 730 at night. And we're open till two on Saturday and we're open um, all day Fridays. What a concept. <laughs> and we're very busy. So you're really going to design those processes with the customer experience in mind. Now, you also want to make sure you have those processes and procedure manuals. I'm sure, Rana, when you go in and look at a business, you're inspecting those policy and procedure manuals. You're inspecting those employee handbooks. You're making sure the upper-level management team have non-competes in place. And you're making sure that there's SOP checklists. You know, you want it to run like a McDonald's or a Burger King. And so this is very, very important. I've seen buyers walk in, 
due diligence and look at this stuff and walk out because like, oh, this is too much work. <laughs> we have to rebuild this company. So very important processes. Um, the other thing that's really, really, really big is, and I, and I missed, I, I skipped a step in product, but I can come back to that. Proprietary. Proprietary is the number one value driver. Rhonda will probably pay more money for a company that has, that is well-branded. Because the more well-branded your company is, A, the more I can sell it for, but the more revenue that business is going to generate. Look at Amazon. The most valuable brand in the world is, y'all know? Uh, probably Coca-Cola, Pepsi. <laughs> Coca-Cola is in the top 10 Pepsi stock. Yeah. Apple. Oh, Apple, yeah. I got it, yep. $289 billion just for the brand. $289 billion just for the brand. That's not anything else. That's not inventory assets, real estate. That's nothing else. That's just the brand alone. So if you're selling a business, you want to build your brand. The more valuable your brand is, the more I can sell your company for. Also, trademarks. You know, Rhonda, if you look at buying a business, I would assume it's important for you to buy a company that has federal trademarks on their company name, their company slogan, their logo, because if not, you can receive a system assist letter in the mail, and that says you have to stop using that company name, that slogan, anything that's important to your company, and then you have to start the branding process all over again because the likelihood of you losing a court is pretty great. <laughs> so you want to got to make sure you get those federal trademarks. If you're if you have a company, if you're buying a company, don't buy a company without that because it's extremely important. Or if you got to go get that, go get it. Do your research first and discount it from the price of the business. And then same thing with products. If, if the company has products, like we're selling a company that has multiple products, they're pretty much similar, but they have different trademarks. And each product is exclusive to TJ Maxx, exclusive to Walmart, exclusive to, you know, different, different retail stores. So you can also get a federal trademark on that. If you don't have a federal trademark right now, put the TM. Put the TM behind your name. Put the TM behind your slogan, behind your logo. This is proprietary assets. It can take you from a three multiple to a four to a five to an eight to a ten. Also, patents. If you've ever watched Short Take, you want to have a patent. <laughs> because sharks always ask, you know, do you have a patent? Do you have a patent pending? Do you have a utility patent? And we went to a company that wasn't making that much money for $18 million because they had 18 patents. And then the other big thing is contracts. If you're trying to buy a company that has reoccurring subscription model, you want to make sure they have contracts. Now, there's all kinds of contracts. There's vendor contracts. There's distribution contracts. There's franchisor. There's franchisees. There's also, like I said, manufacturing. There's supplier contracts. The most valuable to clients like Ronald is going to be your customer, your client contracts. But here's the problem with contracts. Most business owners, I've never seen a business owner get this right. Let's just be real here. <laughs> In 22 years, I've never seen a business owner get this right. 98% of all sales are asset sales, not stock sales. Right. <clears throat> if your contract doesn't have a transferability clause, and your buyer doesn't agree to a stock sale, you have to go to all of your clients and get them to agree to transfer, to, to consent to transfer. We got a marketing company that's got 2,000 clients. That would be a nightmare. We had a transportation company that we sold in, in, in Kansas City that ended up having to go stock because they had 100 clients, at, like hospitals, nursing homes, etc. I told them during the entire process, get transferable language. So you want to make sure you have that transferable language. Also, build up that reoccurring model because like Ronald said, he wants to buy a company that either has a subscription model or at least has the potential that they can build one into it. Subscription model businesses typically sell for much higher multiple than non-subscription models. And then databases. I mean, Facebook paid $19 billion for WhatsApp and WhatsApp was hemorrhaging. But WhatsApp had a billion users. So buyers like Ronald are looking for they're looking for those those congruent synergies, you know, because a lot of times it's a strategic buy. There's five different types of buyers, and they're looking for strategic buys that can help catapult their current companies to the next level. So databases can do that. We have an app company that's been on the market for two weeks that we sold over over a price price because they have a huge database. And then the other big thing is celebrity endorsements. We have a client that's working with Oprah. Lots of, lots of strategics will want to buy that company because they want to get their products in front of the clean of everything. Radio personalities. 
I mean, Ronald right here looks like a ra big, famous radio host. <laughs> so radio personalities are huge because that's digital real estate. If you've got, you know, Glenn Beck or somebody really big endorsing your product, they can only endorse one vertical at a time because they lose credibility. And if you have that, those morning slots or you have, you know, you own that, that real estate for your product, let's say you have a skincare company, nobody else can bump you from that. Strategists right. will pay a lot of money for that. And same thing with like number one on Etsy where, you know, good spots at Amazon. This is what we call digital real estate. This is your proprietary assets. This will get you the highest value possible. I've had people outbid people. I have one company pay 165% more for a company because of proprietary synergies. And then the fifth P is patrons. Most businesses follow the 80-20 rule, where 80% of their revenue comes from 20% of their clients. They lose a few clients, they're literally at risk of going out of business following bankruptcy. So you want customer diversification, not customer concentration. And the other thing that's important, you've been in business 20, 30, 40 years, your clients are probably aging out. I said it earlier, always aim, always innovate in market. The last mm -hmm. P is profits. We're all in business to make money. We're not in business to lose money. <laughs> but unfortunately, I would tell you a huge percentage of businesses in business lose money. And it's for a lot of different reasons. But I always say the lack of profits is never your problem. The lack of profits is the symptom of not having the right people in the right seats. The business owner doing too many things. The business being dependent upon an owner. Being in a dying industry, not a thriving industry. Not having congruent revenue centers. So if one dies, you still get paid. Not having the right processes. Designing the customer experience in mind. Not perfecting it for, you know, not protecting the proprietary asset. We have a client right now that spent over a half a million dollars trying to protect their company name. Nobody wins in those lawsuits except for the attorneys. <laughs> the attorneys. Yeah. So lack of profits is never your problem. Also, I mentioned earlier, three out of five companies get get embezzled every year. So a lot, you know, owners are control freaks. And then when they let go, Ronald, they let go. And they never inspect what they expect. They trust, okay. but they never verify. So you got to make sure you have those checks and balances, especially when it comes to your clients and your money. It's interesting as I... Uh... I brought this up on the show before. I looked at a Texas company. Um, it seemed pretty good, and the owner was retiring out. And then I started meeting some of the other C-level and V-level, uh, you know, the VPs and the, the other C-level, chief marketing officer. And everybody that I met, I started realizing they're all over 70. So I started asking. It's like, okay, well, owner's retiring. What are you doing? And uh, like, well, I'm just hanging around. It's like I had four of the top like people running this company, four out of six people that ran this company told me that they were, they were hanging around out of loyalty for him. They wanted to, they've been trying to get him to retire for a while. So like, okay, now you realize like they just, without saying it, they just told me that <clears throat> within the first two years of this thing being up and running, I'm going to have to replace everybody that knows how to run it. Yeah. And you that's know. why it's good to have a, have an advisor because advisor, especially a good advisor like us, we're going to look at all that. We're going to look at how old is the management team? You know, why are they sticking around? Are they just sticking around because of the owner? Or are they sticking around because they're really passionate about the company and they love the vision? I love where the business is headed. And then if it is a situation where all the team is aging out, before we even go to market, we're going to put together a good succession plan as far as, okay, what happens next? How do we plan for these people leaving and getting the right people in? while some of those people are still there and what is that going to cost us in more money because that could be a reduction of EBITDA. That's the problem with this one is there was the company was running lean enough I guess uh, the last couple of years everybody's kind of starting to check out so that, that that scenario is everybody's starting to think about re retiring so they start to do less so yeah. the you know, revenue declines the profitability declines and now there's not enough profitability sitting there to, to double up some of that staff and that's what you kind of needed to do is hire in the mentees to, to work there you know either hire in or promote sure. within and work side by side which for a little while there's an extra overhead and uh i didn't see a path to do it and uh, the first thing i told them is go find a great you know go find yourself a great advisor and uh, you know fix fix your management team well, he's got to fix the business before he goes to market because they'll never maximize value. I got a similar uh, story to that, which I'll tell you about really quickly because I think it's good advice. 
Okay. Um, and, and good advice for buyers and good advice for sellers. You know, I think we're covering both bases here. Um, but we had a plastics manufacturing company, and they're from a different country. Culture is very important to them. And everybody that works for them is, is from the same country. And they believe in loyalty. So they keep waiting. So the people have been there for 20, 30 years, and they keep giving raises, 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 more raises. And guess what? It's a very slim margin in the plastics industry. It's not really about quality. It's about price. And they just over, they just over, their, their, their overhead is just killing them because there's not enough profit to cover that overhead for their loyalty. And I met with them and I did the valuation. They're, they're sticking money into the company just to pay their employees. So I had the hard talk about and they, their big thing was it's not so much what we sell our business for is making sure our employees are taken care of. And I said, well, that's all fine and dandy. But right now, the company's not really worth anything because you don't have any profits. You're putting money in the business, and the new owner's going to come in, and they're going to start cutting people. They have to. They have to start replacing people. And they go, well, we're not going to sell. And I said, fine. You'll be out of business in a couple of years. And I was right. You're, yeah. You're going to so, run out of money. This You can't sustain this forever. No, so. because you always got to look at those profit margins, and you mm -hmm. can't. You can't have your overhead higher than your profit margins. And you got to be able to accommodate for that. If you're going to give raises, you need to add convert revenue streams. You got to be able to, 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 get, to increase that profit margin. But in some industries, you can't increase it. And that's one industry you really couldn't increase it in. Yeah, I came across one, one, of the, one of the first ones I looked at when I got into the space. And, um, you know, they had 55 employees. And we're churning out about twelve million dollars a year in revenue, and had less than a hundred thousand dollars in EBIT, uh, quite a bit less. And then I looked at the a company that was a competitor of them, that was all, like almost making identical products, same industry, couple different things on the product line were different, and it was in concrete storm shelters and stuff. They had eighteen employees and doing three point uh, eight million a year in revenue. And you start looking at one, one of them, you know, 60 something years old and third generation. They don't fire anybody. They've got kids that were working there, you know, 18, 19, that were just hired because dad worked there and grandpa worked there. And it's time to give the kid a job. So they had jobs on that floor that, you know, I, I'm suspecting at this point. Yeah, 55 employees getting paid to and, and like and they kept them through every winter. Winter is really slow for them. So it's just one of those. It was done because it's a family business. Everybody there knew everybody. Uh, all the management was related, you know, and it was the biggest concern I had was the, you know, it's a small town, too. So very small town. So one of two places to work in town, unless you want to drive 30, 40 miles, we come in and we clean house, <laughs> you know. That's a, that's not something you necessarily want to do off the bat. Now we we made an offer on that proper that that business. So what turned it around is they had some uh, some issues, some uh, tax issues and stuff that that blocked it from sale. Uh, we found out during the due diligence, but um, you know they're going to have a real problem. And the real problem is is anybody like you said anybody that comes in and looks at that is going to have to uh, make some major adjustment in staffing. Um, you yeah. Know, you know, the other thing I found, and I've looked at a bunch of these, one of the things I asked for, and I just kind of quit asking because most people don't have it, is give me a list of all your key employees and their job descriptions. Like, who are they and what are they supposed to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis? What are they responsible for? And it's important as a buyer for me to know who does what and who's responsible for what and what falls on you know each person's shoulders. But a lot of these companies under, under 40 or 50 employees, it's just not documented anywhere people kind of just know what they're responsible for. And I was like, well, I don't, as a buyer, I don't know what you're, you know, yeah. I've seen chief marketing officers doing financial tasks. I've seen like, like that they're, they're really good at something. So it became part of their responsibility. Yeah. And That's why uh, it's so imperative to have those defined seats, you know, yeah. those defined seats and defined roles. And yes, you can have one person, you know, cover multiple seats. But it's really important to define that and then have everybody stay in their lane. Yeah, I'm not worried about them staying in the lane because I know people will jump in and help each other in different ways. And people are good at things that are not, you know, not necessarily in their, 
job title. They're just really good at it. I just needed to know as a buyer who's responsible for who's who's accountable yeah. for a certain task in the company, right? Yeah. And uh, so if well, something happens, that- who do who do I who do I call and ask if this you know okay marketing is not like you know we're not getting very many leads. Who do I call, right? Well, and that's why I said you know the lane because here's what happens. It happens to me from time to time because I own different companies. We don't just sell businesses. We also partner with business owners. And I invest my money, resources, you know, core competencies and help them build a business to sell for anywhere from 10 to 20 million. And um, I notice that people will jump into another lane because they are passionate about that and they really like that or they hate what they're doing or they hate certain tasks. That's why it's so important to really interview and make sure you put the right person in the right spot because so many people are trying to fit a square, a square peg into a round hole. And if they are jumping into another lane, not just to offer support, that's different. But if they are constantly jumping in another lane to do different things, you probably got a problem with that person in that seat. Right. So I, we're kind of at the 45-minute mark here. Let's make sure we people know you've got your own podcast. You've got your books out. You've got your firm. Yeah. How do people reach, you know, reach out to you? How do they learn more about you and the resources you have available for them? So i just like to tell them a little bit more about Exit Rich really quickly. Um, Exit okay. Rich is endorsed by Steve Forbes. We said extra rich is a gold mine because you know most businesses won't sell, and the ones that do sell leave lots of money on the table. So um, extra rich is endorsed by Steve Forbes, also Sharon Lecter. I don't know if you've heard of Sharon Lecter, but she's my co-author. She uh, wrote the mentors corner after each chapter, and she is quite interesting individual because she's a financial literacy expert. She's a CPA, and um, she has been an advisor to many different presidents. And then, of course, Kevin Harrington, the original shark from Shark Tank, was the forward. So I just want everybody to know who is Exit Rich for. Exit Rich is really for anybody looking to buy a business, start a business, anyone who owns a business, anyone looking who's an entrepreneur, even high-level executives. You know, I had a pharmaceutical company buy Exit Rich even before it was out. <laughs> they bought the PDF version. They printed it out on ledger paper, and they only gave it to each department head. And all the high-level executives are like, oh, my gosh, this is awesome. We've never done this before. So Exit Rich is not just about selling a business. It's about building a sustainable, scalable, sellable asset. So when you do get ready, like this 80-year-old that you talked about, you actually have something to sell for your desired price tag. And you can get Exit Rich at all the Hudson bookstores. We're at 99 locations. You can also pick it up, obviously, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you pick up your favorite book. We did just release the audio version. So the audio version is live. You can get that at Audible on Amazon. You can get I just downloaded it. Yep. Yeah, and I told you get it for like $4. I have a subscription to Audible. I don't even know. <laughs> it's very it right now right. because we're just launching it. So it's anywhere yep. between 2 to $4. It'll never yep. be that price again. So go get your audible book today, your audio book today. And um, what can people reach me? So, yes, I do have an Exit Rich podcast. You can certainly tune in. Um, we typically have million billion dollar exits, great ideas for business owners. And then also follow me, connect with me on social media. I'm everywhere, face, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can reach me at going to, to STI, which is Southern Tech Incorporated, STI at 360.com. Everything is there. My books are there. My programs are there. Everything is at STI360.com. That saves me from getting out a bunch of websites. One thing I would encourage you to do is go to SadoTuffAcademy.com and take the six-week quiz and see what are your strengths, strongest piece and weakest piece. Awesome, awesome. Well, I do appreciate it. And uh, what what is one thing our audience can do for you? I mean, is there uh, is there something right now that you uh, like? Can they share the book link or what, what, what's something we can sure. do to help you uh, move your world forward? They can, obvi- they can, you know, I love that question because I've been on over 400 podcasts and nobody's ever asked me that. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, they can really help support the audio book right now and go out and buy an audio book, share the links. Um, you know, you can buy your audio book wherever you buy your audio books. Share that with your community. Share that with, you know, your network, your friends, family, and really support me because we are, um, you know, heading into some bestsellers for the audio book. And then the other big thing that will really help us is Amazon testimonials. So if you've read Exit Rich, if, it's, if you've listened to it, if it's helped you in any way, um, that, that would be phenomenal for us. 
And then if you know any business owner that's struggling, we have a Road to Exit Rich program uh, where we put them in our program and we really work on their business, getting them to build a solid infrastructure on their six Ps so that they can sell for the desired price. And if you know anybody looking to sell a business, um, we would love to talk to them. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll encourage all the listeners, if you're not running your business as if you're trying to sell it, you really should be. You might find that you don't want to sell it once it's running that way because it takes a lot less of your effort. <laughs> but but of, if you have to have a sellable asset and you'll right. set your family up for success, not right. for failure. It's the old, uh, you know, if you take a car to the, the, the detailer to get it detailed because you're thinking about selling it. And once you start driving down the road afterwards, it's like, man, this is too bad. Why would I want to sell it? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you get your business running right, if 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 you're selling because of any type of burnout, stress, or anything like that, this might be the answer to to creating some. It's definitely the answer before you sell it to get it get it running right, get it sellable, uh, to sell for something substantial. Uh, but it's also it might be an answer to um, having it run to grow and become more of a sellable asset later on. Um, I think a lot of times you're a lot of, I get a lot of owners like, well, I'm just burnt out on, I want to do something else. And it's because you're in there doing every single thing yourself. Right. And, and then if that's the case, you don't have business to sell anyway. Exactly. <laughs> so like, extra rich is really like the first half of it, Ronald, it's not even about selling your company. The first half is all about, you know, building a sustainable, sellable, scalable business. So when you are ready, it's sellable. And if you decide you want to take some chips off the table, a lot of times business owners just, they want to take some chips off the table. Or maybe you don't want to be the 100% owner anymore. And maybe right. you want to sell a 60, 70, 80% of your company. And that's what Extra Rich is all about is, you know, what's best for you. And it might not be selling, and that's okay. We're not, you know, we're not shoving Extra Rich in your throat and saying, you've got to sell your business. But what we are saying is you got to stay in business because we got to protect the United States economy. And we got to continue to import over half the U.S. workforce. That's what I'm saying. You've got to either stay in business, save your company from going out of business, and when you're ready, exit rich, not exit poor. Awesome. Thank you for being on the show today. We're going to wrap this up, all right? Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That's the show, guys. Hang out for just a second. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline leave us some information. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T I E pm.com and check out the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind